Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod, the first of 2020, here in our Seaport Studios in New York with ESPN's Jalen Rose. We remember the late commissioner, David Stern. Stay with us. Jalen, happy new year to you. Happy new year, Woj. We are here Thursday in Seaport. David Stern passed away New Year's Day, 77 years old. Hall of Fame commissioner, 30 years running the league. Jay, when you think of David Stern, you know, every player, they, they think of draft night and, and every kid of your generation drew, grew up dreaming of shaking David Stern's hands. Now they're kids who don't know David Stern. They see Adam Silver and, and it, it changes. But beyond draft night, when you're a player in the NBA, at the time you played in the league, which really was a little bit the back end of his tenure, not the end, but the back end, how was he viewed by you, your peers? How did you look at Stern? He was widely respected. He always seemed to have his fingers on the pulse as it was relative to making sure that everybody was moving in concert. And when I mean everyone, I'm talking about ownership, management, players. There were some turbulent times when you do a job for 30 years, that's going to happen. I will never forget being so very upset that the NBA changed the basketball. I think it was like 2006. I couldn't shoot that rubber thing, Woj. I grew up remembering the old school chocolate NBA ball with that was heavy once it got wet. Uh, I remember when the league moved the three-point line in. I was not happy about that. There were a couple of labor strikes. In 1998, we played 50 games instead of 82. There were some bumps in the road. But I tell you what, when he started to be commissioner, the average salary for players was $250,000. Now players are making $7 million on average. He made it vogue for NBA players to compete in the Olympics. So people see this now and just think we're going to automatically win the gold medal. But this was at a time where international players like Sabonis and, and so many other guys were really playing so very well against the uh, Team USA. He was like, I'm going to take this brand internationally. And in 1992, instituted a dream team. Now, as a Detroiter, I was unhappy that Isaiah wasn't a part of it. <laughs> but at the, the same time... The, there were bigger things at work <laughs> than correct. David Stern. That wasn't on David. That was yeah. not on David. And... You know, all of the words, the buzzwords really apply to him. Innovator, leader, uh, intelligent, and being a visionary of what the game is now to where an average player, and what I mean by average player, a guy averaging eight, nine points a game, cannot make $20 million a year to play basketball. And that's really off of the sweat equity that was built by David Stern. Were you ever a player's player rep? Jalen, it feels like you should have been, were you? I was not a player rep. What we did usually in the locker room, because I was fortunate enough to, every team that I played for, I was a captain at least once. So what we tried to do is get a guy, a young player, to actually do all of that legwork, Woj. 
But when he came into the locker room, we'll feed him all of the things that we wanted. To that's right, because that's what the, the that, and that's what the that's what the veteran <laughs> players did. There would always be some young player who would have to go to the meeting All Star Weekend. Yes, he'd get the free there tri- you go. He'd get the free trip to the Bahamas. <laughs> And, and, and that's, but that's why, like, the Players Association didn't have, there needed to be more, and. Correct. It's a little better now. It's better now than it was. But, you know, there weren't a lot of the key guys involved who should have been, and that's why things got away from the Players Association or Billy Hunter. That became. Correct. That, that thing was built, and I did a lot of work on this at that time on, you know, financially, that thing was built for the benefit of Billy Hunter, his family, his inner circle. The numbers bore that out. And part of it, though, was that the players allowed it to happen. And David Stern took great advantage of it. And, and I, it's funny. It, it would always be, you know, lockouts are acrimonious. They always are. Um, his would be, I mean, we'd always be reporting from those meetings of, you know, there'd always be yelling. When there's David, there'd be yelling matches, right? Yes. And there'd be players yelling back and forth across the table with him. He loved getting Michael Jordan on the owner's side because it it put a different dynamic in the room. It, it really did. But those lockouts, and, and there was one I wrote about it yesterday on .com. It was before the final lockout where he was, it was All-Star Weekend in Chicago. But he basically came in the locker room. Billy Hunter was addressing the players. David Stern came in. And Stern essentially said, and he was sort of laying the groundwork for those summer discussions, we were headed toward a lockout and basically threatened the players. Like, I know where all the bodies are buried, he said, because I buried them there. <laughs> and and I remember talking to Derek Rose after, and it stunned the room. And there were the guys were actually, they kind of respected it. I mean, they, they kind of did. You have to. And just look at how NFL players disrespect Roger Goodell at every chance they get. In the media, amongst one another, the decisions sometimes that they disagree with, they outwardly let it be known on social media. You don't see that with David Stern. But part of that too, Jay, don't you think is how ownership is set up in the NFL, in the NBA, guaranteed contracts versus non-guaranteed contracts. There's no question who Roger Goodell works for. He works for the owners. Now, Mm There was no question who David Stern worked for. He worked for the owners too, but he had a way at times to been able to make it feel a little more like a partnership. But I, I do think with football, you live year to year in the NFL, except for very few players. In the NBA, come on, when you played, there were seven-year contracts in the league. Yes. There were seven-year contracts. I played 13 years, Woj. My first deal was six years. My second deal was seven years. I'm one of those players that fall into right. that category. But but what I mean by the parallel of the NFL is how he wanted the game to be marketed as the stars of the league were superheroes. They were like movie stars. This was the 80s. And he walked into a league that had a couple in Magic and Bird. He started in 1984. That's Jordan's draft year. They instituted a draft lottery with the infamous, alleged, yeah. cold, yeah. Uh, Patrick Ewing um, lottery. And so all of those great players came. Well, Hakeem Olajuwon came at that time. So starting to market around those guys gave the game 
not only a, a new enthusiasm, but it also gave it a partnership feel that continued to carry throughout his tenure. Let me ask you this. This is off the – do you feel the players today feel this is a partnership? Back then, I always got the sense that players – that everybody, as they were building the league, felt they were all in it together. They all had a role of responsibility in it. Does that still exist now? Is that different now? It's different now. I think players have gone past that point, and now they feel a sense of ownership within themselves, walking corporations as entities, as individuals, that they don't necessarily view the league and the team as their partner because there's so much money involved, there's so much fame, there's so much glory, that now players can control their destiny. There was a time when you got traded to a bad team, you had to be a professional, go out there and ball. There wasn't a time where, oh, I'm not feeling the best four games in five nights, long road trips for two weeks, and I'm going to take games off because I'm tired and I'm low managing. That's when you were trying to build the league. It's It kind of reminds me of being a parent. There's so many times when you grow up in the inner city or you have a humble beginning and you think to yourself, I now live in the suburbs with my family. They go to great schools. They're exposed to the best of the best. I'm going to take them back to my neighborhood and I'm going to show them how tough I had it. And all they see is that looks great, dad, but they can't relate. Right. And so today's players, they can't relate to that hustle. They can't relate to that struggle. They can't relate to building up the game to where now people are actually liking your post on IG and following you on Twitter, and now you're a part of the Forbes list. It's it's off the great sacrifices of so many people before them, including David Stern. Jalen, the beginning of a new year is an opportunity to create new habits to be our happiest, healthiest selves. And if you want to sleep better and feel less stressed, you need calm. It's the easiest way to improve your mental and physical health and start your 2020 off right. Calm is the number one app for sleep, relaxation, and meditation. Calm has sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories for adults. They can help you fall into a deep, natural sleep in minutes. And stories are narrated by iconic voices like LeVar Burton and Nick Offerman. They also have soothing music from artists like Sam Smith, guided meditations, breathing exercises, and so much more to keep you relaxed and de-stress. And if you go to calm.com slash Woj, you'll get a limited time offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programming. Over 60 million people use Calm. I'm one of them. Join us today to accomplish your goals tomorrow. For listeners of the Woj Pod, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calmcalm.com slash Woj, W-O-J. That's 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library and new content is added every week. Once again, get started today at calm.com slash Woj. That's calm.com Slash Woj. I think the one thing Stern's tenure, and especially as it went on, how he his style, which was 
for lack of a better word, like authoritarian. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I remember when Stern was cycling out and Adam Silver was coming in and there was that time where you knew Adam was going to be the commissioner and David was going to retire and someone described it to me how it would change. And they said that under Stern, the power was in Washington. The power was in the Capitol. It was with him. And that under Silver, it would become state power, meaning the power would be among the owners. There'd be less in, hypothetically, use an analogy, in, in Washington. And it was because the owners changed in the league. Correct. And there, there was a generation of owners who bought teams at really no, low numbers, a million, $2 million, $5 million, and they grew exponentially. And so those owners, David Stern made them richer beyond their wildest imagination. They never imagined they would make that money owning an NBA team. So they were more apt to allow him, all right, David, if you think that's best, we'll go down that road, we'll support you. And then as the ownership changed, as the Mark Cubans came in the league, self-made guys who were billionaires who spent more on teams, um, the Dan Gilberts, you know, the Philly group, you look at the Atlanta group, Milwaukee, different generation of owners they wanted more say and they wanted they had opinions and you, you, the small market versus big market became a much bigger issue and, and i think that was harder for david stern because he was not a, he wasn't necessarily a collaborator in that world adam silver fits it better but it's interesting to see how the league changed and and i think even in the last years of stern people can remember it the way they want to remember it now and i think there's some revisionist his re- his relationship with the players really deteriorated mm-hmm. in the last years because they didn't have the relationships with him that I think you know the guys in the eighties and nineties when he was younger had. He was seen more when the dress code came in. Come on, that was a big, it was a big. It was seen as anti young African American player. It was seen yes. as yes. as we're trying to you know remember Allen Iverson. I think and it was I don't think it was David Stern's doing. I think it was just one guy. Remember he airbrushed. His, his, tattoos. his tattoos off for maybe like a game program. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that that order came. I think somebody just made a decision. And mm-hmm. But those things all added up to the final years were different. They, they were different. And he didn't leave to, you know, the, 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 I always felt the players at the end saw him as an adversary. That last, I don't know how many years, five years, six years? The last, the last, the last four or five years. And, and, I have a unique perspective because my biological father was the number one pick in the 1967 NBA draft, Jimmy Walker. However, I never met him. And being born in 1973, basketball was in my blood. So I remember when the games were on tape delay, watching Dr. J and Magic and Larry. I remember when Stern got the job. I was a teenager at the time. I was, what, 84? I was 11 years old. So I vividly was following him and saw him as that leader that you talk about. And there was that period of the league where he needed to be strict. Um, The league had a bad reputation in the 80s, a lot of drug use, um, turned off a lot of corporate sponsors. You talked about the price of teams. Teams were being sold between five and ten million dollars. You could buy an NBA team for under ten million dollars. Yeah, if, if you were making the mid-level exception now <laughs> in the NBA, right. you could you could own an right. NBA team. Yeah. Now, now the average team is worth one point nine billion dollars. Yeah. So I'll also 
acknowledge for the great David Stern, one of the great, the, one of the underrated things that he did, he ushered Adam Silver into the position. I'm not saying that they are always in sync because they're grown, they're, they're adults, they're individuals, they, they see things a lot different um, based on the information that is gathered. I think he was the great leader for that time period. Like Adam is a terrific leader for this time period. But I want to talk about the turbulent years that you described. In the 80s, when he had to build the reputation of the league for corporate sponsors, the dynamics of the game is always tricky because of this. It's a predominantly black league, say 75% of the players. When I'm in high school, however, that dynamic still exists, except as a public school student, the fans were predominantly black as well. So as you graduate in the game, now all of a sudden I get to college. The dynamics on the floor are the same, but the stands look totally different. So he had to manage that juggling act. And I remember when he instituted the dress code, we were upset about it. But it was a unique set of circumstances. Allen Iverson, people also underestimate two things. Rap music and the NBA started going hand in hand with the bad boy Pistons. You can't touch this, MC Hammer. I remember being in the league in 1994, and the most hip hop you can hear was "Whoop." There it is. Okay, <laughs> during, a, during, a time, during a timeout, <laughs> right? When they're shooting T-shirts yes, in the stands, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so now you hear rough and rugged and edgy hip hop rap music while the ball is being dribbled. And so for Allen Iverson to be the MVP of the league, wearing a 4X shirt when he probably only needs an XL, with cornrows, with multiple tattoos, the league didn't know what to do with his corporate sponsors. So for me, as players, we were really mad about it. And then I noticed something. They weren't enforcing the dress code. It was something that was out there. It was a headline. It made everybody have conversations about it. But we didn't change how we how we dressed. The, the rule was, I think you had to have a collared shirt. Had to have, <laughs> right? Wasn't it? Yeah. I think you had to have a collar. Right. Yeah. Oh, a collar shirt. Great. Yeah. yeah. And then that graduates to a hoodie. Right. Then it graduates right. to a mock neck. And so for his 30 years to watch how the league has grown, how players have grown, I owe a debt of gratitude for him because I was one of those young people that grew up dreaming. I have to get on stage with David Stern. I have to. And, of course, he always teased me for ruining the draft dress code because he did not like my red and white suit. <laughs> and he told me that that night. He's like, what are you doing, Jalen? I was like, oh, this is Detroit. He's like, all right, whatever. So I always appreciated him for that. I think Stern's style and how he went about it, which was you were going to do it his way, you were going to fall in line, he didn't like to be challenged. I think that played a big part in all the conspiracy theories that sort of snaked their way through his tenure, whether it was... You know, draft lottery, it started with the Knicks and that stuff was always there. And, and I always said, here's an example of like a draft lottery where like he was sitting behind me. I wrote about it. 
This was the Greg Oden, Kevin Durant draft. And I said in that order because Oden was the, the prize. I mean, the other people will tell you we would have taken Durant first You're if lying. we had the one pick. Odin was a consensus. Ohio State blocking every shot, grabbing every rebound. And it was still at a time when the league was viewed built around centers. And so, anyway, he's sitting behind me in Secaucus at that draft lottery. And the final three teams come up. It was a lottery when, let's see, the um, Philly was in it. Uh, the Celtics were in it. And the Celtics were, it was at a time where they were hoping they were going to get, you know, obviously they're, Team had been down. They'd come off that real bad season. Doc was sort of holding on there with him and Danny Ainge. And he says behind me, so we get to the final three, and they announce the three envelopes. It's Atlanta, Portland, and Seattle. And Stern says under his breath to one of his guys who was sitting behind me, I don't think he's, I'm sure he didn't see me sitting right in front of him. He said, the Pacific Northwest in the goddamn deep south, give me, give me a big market, and I was like, "What did I just hear?" Like, and I knew nobody else heard it. I'm like, "Holy sh!" Like, I'm the only. I, I heard what I just heard, right. and but it spoke to. And then, um, you know, irony is Boston gets the fifth pick. They do the trade. They don't get. It's funny how it changed. They end up doing the. They trade the fifth pick to Seattle. They get Ray Allen. Seattle takes Jeff Green. And then they've got the assets. They do the Kevin Garnett trade. You know, if Boston got Durant or Odin, they would, if they gotten one or two, they wouldn't have put that team together. They wouldn't have made the Ray Allen trade. It changed it. But in that moment, they were devastated because they thought there were two franchise players there. Now, that moment told me David Stern had no idea what the envelopes were, you know, what they were going to show. You know, it was a, it was an honest moment of frustration. He wanted a star and a big, he wanted to, I think, get Boston and Philly back going. But whether it was a draft lottery and then it very much with officiating, right? There was always this feeling of certain officials get put on certain games that might influence certain results, certain veteran league officials in a game six or seven. Joey Crawford. That's a veteran league official, certainly. <laughs> um, you know, Dick Bavetta. The, the, but, you know, now they were also the established elite officials, too. But, I love those older guys. Yeah. Hollins. Yeah, well, you, you could talk guys. to them, right? Yes. Yeah. But it fed into all the conspiracy theories of what the league wanted, which was, you know, I mean, Stern. Somebody asked Stern once, and it was probably the most honest answer he ever gave, like, what would be your ideal finals, I think was the question. And he said, Lakers versus Lakers. <laughs> Lakers versus Lakers. And it's probably, and that's still true today in, in the world of TV. But I do think his style, there was always a sense among teams that he played his favorites with certain organizations, certain owners, and that there were a lot of double standards and different sets of rules for different organizations. And I do think Stern's aggressive, very often threatening everybody around, threatened everybody all the time. That that fed this feeling around the league that, like, things weren't always square. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's fair. Parenting nowadays is different. I grew up in an era where my mom frequently told me, do as I say, not as I do. And that's how we marched to those orders. That was David Stern. When you look at the current landscape of players and society, it's no without hesitation. The first thing young people will do is say why they challenge authority. And so we needed David to be that guy that 
always wanted to promote and push the league because if you look at media nowadays, that's a lot of times for national publications, usually they do what we call play the hits. If you think about it, and as a visionary, he saw that. In football, talking about a couple of players and a couple of teams. Talking about Dallas Cowboys and anything about them. You're talking about the Patriots. You're going to talk about Tom Brady. Then you go, who else won Super Bowls? Okay, we're going to talk about Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about the Packers. The same thing in the NBA. The Lakers and the Celtics played in the finals eight out of ten years in the 80s. Right. And if you were going to watch it, if, if there was a game on the weekends, a CBS game or an NBC game, it was a few teams and a few markets. And, you know, it's funny. People talk about, like, geez, why has the All-Star weekend become so irrelevant? Why does nobody want to do anything? And And you think back. If you were Dominique Wilkins in that era, playing for the Atlanta Hawks on really good teams, right? Really good teams, but and, and they were on Turner. They had a different setup mm-hmm. of TV, but for the most part, most people didn't see Dominique going to All Star Weekend and being that slam dunk contest was huge for him. It was huge for it was important for Michael Jordan to be in it. It was important for Dr. J. Like that was people didn't. They weren't watching the games on their phones. They weren't watching League Pass. They didn't they didn't see you that much out of market. And it was important, you know, to win it became iconic to win a slam dunk contest. Or you think of the three point contest with Bird holding his finger up in the mm-hmm. air. I can't think of a moment from the last fifteen years in three point contest that stay you know, but then you thought of like you, you can see Dr. J jumping from you know, whether it's Dr. J or you know, Michael, Dominique, we can the rest of them, they run together the last 10, 15. They don't mean much. And the impact of that was was great. I mean, it really was great in terms of making those players accessible to the masses. And it was um, – we take it for granted now, but it was a hard climb to get players outside of, you know, New York, L.A., Chicago, Boston, Philly, you know, much run in the public eye. Absolutely, and I'm, and I'm glad you used the examples that you used. All-Star Weekend and Dominique Wilkins. And I'm going to do a, a, a parallel and pull a bow on that. They also were trying to grow the game. The best players wanted to participate to grow the game. LeBron James didn't have to. That's the difference. And also, for a guy like Dominique, aside from their relationship with Turner, what ends up happening is being on that stage, mano a mano against Michael Jordan, became just as important as playing for the Hawks yeah. because he never made it to the NBA Finals. So this is my chance to actually beat MJ at something. Yeah. Same with Spud Webb. And that's what's changed about All-Star Weekend is the players playing on Sunday are participating on Saturday. And you know what as much of it I think is as anything is in this day and age, I think some guys might like to compete in it, but you know what they don't want to do? Lose. They, they don't want to lose. Correct. Because you're, because five or six guys are in it and what does it become? You get crushed on, like, it's like, come on, I take crap all year long on social media. Now I'm going to lose. I'm going to miss a dunk. Why am I going to put myself through that? Their agent doesn't want a minute because what's going to happen is, like, okay, let's go and do this. And then it goes wrong. Then the player's going to blame the agent. Why'd you let me do that? Why didn't you stop me? 
And then, so nobody, and so instead, you have guys winning the slam dunk contest that Jalen, like, they're barely in the league. Yes. They're barely in the league. Yes. But here's the flip side to that, too. The game has grown so much, they don't need it for popularity or they don't need the money. See, before, players were trying to get it all. Yep. Trying to grow the game, trying to get paid. There's a reason why Michael Jordan still sells more shoes than everybody in the NBA. It started then. Before they were winning championships. As a Detroit Pistons fan, I rooted against Jordan his entire career. Detroiters and Indiana are two places that I've been that always root against Michael Jordan because he was that great. You bow down and pay homage. But that legend was grown during All-Star Weekend. And then it was fostered in the playoffs when he scored 63 against the Boston Celtics at the Garden. And then all of a sudden people started to realize, wait a minute, it's not just Lakers. It's not just Celtics. Pistons snuck in there and got a couple of championships. And then here come Jordan and the Bulls taking the league by storm. And I remember when he retired, people wonder, is the league going to be able to survive without MJ? Yep. Now the league is thriving from top. Nicholas Batum makes $125 million <laughs> to play basketball. Yep. For Jordan's team. Just think about that. And is he performing? Is he playing this year? Has he played since he got that money? How do you think Michael feels he's got to write that check out twice <laughs> right. a month? That's why I going, had to use him as an yeah. example. <laughs> uh, you know, we could keep going, Jay. You've got one of your 15 jobs here <laughs> at ESPN, one of your 11 shows. Uh, appreciate you taking time. Anytime. Friday, NBA Countdown. Yes, indeed. Friday, then, then Sundays will be coming here soon mm-hmm. on ABC. Jay, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon, man. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To this edition of the Woj Pod, a big thank you to my guest, ESPN's Jalen Rose. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, be sure to also listen and subscribe to the Low Post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhurst. Happy New Year. We'll catch you again soon.